Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. now to the study of God's Word. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, grab your devices. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. So we're moving out of the book of Luke into Matthew this morning as we continue our Advent series. Now looking at um, the Advent characteristic of peace. Advent is a Latin term which just means arrival or coming. And this tradition of the Advent has been celebrated by the church for hundreds of years. And one thing I love about these kinds of traditional things is that it roots us in history and reminds us that Sharon Church in Older Georgia um, is not particularly unique in and of itself, but we are joining with the saints, Joel said, of saints long ago and of saints today, worshiping and studying, and many of them studying this very same thing today. I love that idea of being united um, around the world with churches doing this uh, together. We'll be in Matthew chapter one, and so we've called this series Fear Not, and the idea of what we're looking at is there's these moments throughout the Christmas story, the account of the birth of Christ, where angels appear, And they speak to particular um, nativity scene characters, if you will, and they speak to them. And the initial uh, words out of the mouth of the angel is, fear not or do not be afraid. Now, if you're like me, you've read that a lot in your life and you've assumed it's because angels are, are terrifying creatures. And that might be why the angel said to fear not. And I think maybe so. But if we put everything in context and we see the angel always gives an antidote to the fear, in their statement, and and the statement is not, fear not, I'm harmless, fear not, I'm a good guy. It's not that, it's fear not, and then gives a reason. So this morning we're gonna look at this moment where Joseph interacts with an angel. And again, angelic creatures, um, divine beings, we're not real sure what they look like or what they're like. We know for sure they aren't chubby little babies in a diaper. We know that for sure. Um, Most scholars would tell you they're, they're warriors, they are strapping young lads. They're warriors, um, probably, and they show up. They speak, they're messengers who speak on on behalf of God. This one is unique in this account because this angel shows up to Joseph in a dream, in a dream, which leads us to a few questions. I'm gonna try to deal with them uh, just a little bit here today. Now, uh, if you've been paying attention or listened to anything in the past year or so, You've heard the word deconstruction. Anybody heard the word deconstruction in anything you've read or listened to? All right, well, let me catch you up to speed. Um, There are a number of people who had grown up in the church who are now walking through what they're calling deconstruction. Now, they're people just like you and me, and many of them probably uh, my age or so, um, late Gen Gen X people um, who grew up in the church and who were taught moralistic therapeutic deism, who were, who were taught kind of a, 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 a surfacey kind of version of the Bible and of the gospel in particular. And what they're running into as you get older, maybe you've experienced this, as you get older, the things that you were taught when you were younger, the really fluffy, surfacey Care Bear things that, that you're taught in church, um, as you get older, you realize those things don't help you when real life happens. Have you had that experience? The stories you've heard that you saw on the flannel graph and they're great, 
Um, and you learn about David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale, which is a terrifying thing we tell our kids, by the way. But we learn about that, and then we face real life. Like we face hardship, and we face cancer, and we face divorce, and uh, we face job loss, and, and the things falling apart in the world. And those things that we were taught don't carry much weight anymore. So there have been a number of even Christian musicians and artists coming out saying, I'm no longer a Christian. I've deconstructed my faith and now I'm gonna push forward into some kind of new age realm of something. Or some who are honest enough to say, I'm not sure where I land yet. Jesus is a fascinating uh, human being. I'm just not sure where I land on all the other supernatural things that I read about in scripture. And so what many have done is they've decided to pick and choose in scripture what they want to believe and some things that they don't want to believe, which sounds great. Wouldn't that be nice? If we could just pick and choose what we want to believe and not want to believe. But what seems to be consistent for these people is that they were raised in a, uh, a church background, which is heartbreaking. For people to have grown up in the church and to reach adulthood and not have, not have the bones on which to put the flesh of the world onto. They're struggling. It comes from, the word deconstruction comes from a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida. And what he describes is, it's more literary for him and, and philosophical, um, but what he talks about is when you begin to peel apart the layers and pull at different strings on the tapestry of a thought or of a literary work, what you begin to find out is what they built everything on is not really as substantial as they claimed it to be. When you begin to pull at the threads, you begin to find out that it's just um, it's air thin what they find underneath it. Now, what we can relate to with these people, I would imagine for many of us, is a crisis of faith. We have a moment where what we're experiencing doesn't line up with what it was that we were taught. Now, we can have that outside of faith as well. You can have that in, uh, with your sports teams. You can have that in, um, uh, with people that you follow as far as musicians, that type of thing. But particularly in faith, we have these crisis moments where we struggle. And for some of us, the, the crisis of faith happened because of some hurt that happened on behalf of the church in years past. Or recently, it could be somebody that you looked up to, a pastor, a, uh, a theologian, an author, a musician who just really let you down. They had some moral failure, some kind of big sin came out, and so you've had a crisis of faith because of that. You've, you've been hurt by a pastor, you've been hurt by Christians, You've been hurt by parents who claim to be Christians and yet didn't live like it in, behind closed doors. We have a crisis of faith when we run into friends who believe differently than we do and we actually like those people. Because what you were taught growing up is that people who believe differently than you are idiots. And then you've come to find out they're actually really smart and they're super nice people. And so you have this crisis of, yeah, but I've heard this about them, but this person seems really, really nice. You have a painful life experience of a sickness or divorce or relationship. And the age-old question from the serpent in the garden of, did God really say, starts to creep into our minds. And so we struggle. Now, many of us would believe that that happens when you go away to college. And so you, we keep our kids from college or we just pray for them when they go, which is great. We should pray for them to go to college, particularly like a public university. But listen, this kind of thing can happen wherever our people, wherever we are. It can happen in your cubicle. It can happen at a Christian college. It can happen at a public university. It can happen uh, at a lunch break when you're done building a house. This happens everywhere. 
So for me, the question is not the waves or the storm. The question is our anchor. How is our anchor? The waves will come. And for many of us, what we've anchored our faith in, we kind of have two um, options. Many of us have anchored our faith in religion. We've anchored our faith in legalism. We've anchored our faith in doing the right things at the right time while wearing the right things, listening to the right kind of music. That's what we've rooted our faith in. And then some of us um, have rooted our faith uh, away from that and more in irreligion or licentiousness. I'm gonna do whatever I wanna do because it feels good. And so what happens when it doesn't feel good or when doing the right thing doesn't yield the results that we want it to yield, we have a crisis of faith. What we're gonna read here this morning in Matthew chapter one, and Raji talked about it beautifully, this crisis of faith that Joseph has that I think we undermine because we don't study the Christmas story the way we study other parts of the Bible because they're cute and because it just gets us to the presence. We have to really study this to understand what's happening. So we're gonna be in Matthew. We've been in Luke the past couple of weeks. Remember, Luke is a Gentile. Luke is not a Jew. Luke uh, did not walk with Jesus. Luke walked with people who walked with people who walked with Jesus. And so um, Luke's perspective is a little bit different. Luke wrote his book by gathering information through interviews with people who had eyewitness accounts with Jesus. That's how Luke wrote it. Luke's whole perspective throughout his book, throughout his gospel, his perspective of Jesus, is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, of which Luke would say he was lost. So he writes about those who were on the, on the underside of society. That's how Luke writes. Matthew's different. Matthew was a Jew. Matthew was very Jewish. Matthew uh, was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. But Matthew was a tax collector. Jewish people hate tax collectors. Most people hate tax collectors, not just Jewish people, but back then the Hebrews in particular, because um, the tax collectors work on behalf of Rome and Rome was suppressing or oppressing uh, the Jewish people. Matthew is a Jewish man who is now working for the Roman government, turning his back on his friends. This is who he is. But he's a Jewish man, which means till the age of 13, he was studying the scriptures, the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament. He probably had them memorized. At the age of 13, he was essentially, he interviewed for a job opening to step in to follow a rabbi and was told, you're not good enough. And so Matthew then was told to go back to, to follow in his father's footsteps to work in his father's line of work. But for Matthew, what we understand is his father, that line of work wasn't working for him. So he, he decided not to do that. He became a tax collector instead. So he's on the outskirts of society, but he has a, a lot of Jewish history and heritage. And so in fact, he's gonna write to a Jewish audience. So he begins, remember where Luke begins with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist? Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And I know they're boring for a lot of us. I would just encourage you to dig in and study the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Take some time, look into these people that are listed there and why and who and all that. But anyway, this is, this is Matthew. One of Matthew's core texts is in Matthew 23, where Jesus gives the woes to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are those who had taken the law, the Old Testament law, and had added their own stuff to it to make people behave the way they wanted them to behave. Because if they behaved the right way, they made more money, they got more power. So I know that just happened a long time ago. It doesn't happen anymore, but it used to happen that people liked money and power. And so they would, they would take religion to make that happen for them. Used to happen, I'm not saying it does anymore. So this is, uh, this is how Matthew writes. This is the context of what's happening. So let's keep all that in mind as we get into Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one, verse 18. 
Uh, Raji and Stacy read this earlier, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. If you're reading the King James, it says, um, took place in, on this wise. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. We talked about this a couple of times. Betrothal is a, um, it's a Jewish way of kind of in between engagement and marriage. They're legally given to each other. So there's a legally binding contract that's happened here. You don't just break up. Divorce has to happen if you're gonna break up at this point. What's happened is uh, Mary has been given to Joseph in marriage. Joseph then has gone away to his father's house to build a room for he and Mary to move into. This is Jewish custom. At some point during the betrothal period, he would return from his father's house and he would come back and take his bride and would tell her, I have prepared a place for you. And at that point, there would be the wedding ceremony and then they would consummate the marriage and then it would be a legally, uh, a legally binding marriage at that point. They're just betrothed in marriage. Mary, a young girl, anywhere from 12 to 16. Joseph, anywhere from maybe 18 to 35, which is kind of like when the cable guy says, I'm gonna come work on your cable. Anywhere from two to next Tuesday, I'll be there. <laughs> this is the age, age gap for him. Okay, betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, meaning before they were, had um, consummated their marriage, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, now pay attention, being a just man and, circle that word and, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Her husband, Joseph. Now, Matthew calls him a just man. Some of your translations call him a righteous man. Here's what this means about Joseph. Joseph was a law keeper, an Old Testament law keeper. Joseph liked the law. He loved it. I think he's a guy who thought in black and white. There was right and there was wrong. You do, you, you do, you do this, you get this. This is how he functioned. A plus B equals C. Moses, or Joseph was a law-keeping man, probably a perfectionist as a carpenter, probably had to be. Any of you in the room today, you, you're law-keeping people, type A, perfectionist. You can raise your hand. You can raise your hand for your spouse, that's fine, or your dad, you can do that for them. This is Joseph. But notice this about Joseph. He is a righteous, law-keeping man, and there's an issue for him, and he was unwilling to put Mary to shame. Joseph has an issue here. Where Joseph has lived his life in black and white, he now runs into an area that feels more gray than black and white. You black and white people, you know how gray makes you feel. This is how this feels for him. There's no clear right or wrong. There is a clear right. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, and again in Numbers, there is, uh, there's reason for divorce, including adultery, which Joseph automatically assumes has happened here. Because I don't care who you are, but if your girl comes to you and says, hey, I'm pregnant, and it's of the Lord, your first inclination is like, oh, I believe you. So he assumes it's adultery, and the law clearly says in cases of adultery, he can divorce her. Not only that, the law suggests that he does because that is sin on her part. And then from that behavior, she will be stoned to death. So the law is clear, but the problem is Joseph does want to be married to her. So we see this and for him 
where the world that was once so black and white is no longer black and white to him and he enters into a crisis of faith. Do I do what I've always done, which is to abide by the law, or do I extend grace to this girl? Now, Joseph historically would have done what the law says. The law says divorce her, tell the authorities about what she has done. She will suffer the consequences. Your name will be cleared. Because if he proceeds in marriage with her, you know what the rumor is around town? That they slept together before their wedding. That they messed around and now she's pregnant. And now they're trying to tell everybody it's the Holy Spirit. He steps into her shame if he doesn't do something about it. So he resolves, in his mind, he decides to, he intends to. This is how he's gonna get out of the situation. It's, everything's black and white, this is gray. And so what he's done is he's, he's spent many nights reading or studying, listening to, asking people what the, what the Torah actually said. What did it actually say about divorce? Do I have wiggle room here? Is there a loophole? And what he's decided is, I have to get rid of her, but I'm gonna do it in a kind way. Now, you've probably heard sermons about how great of a man Joseph was. And maybe he was. The problem with that is that then we look at scripture in a way that says, well, Joseph, Joseph must have risen to the occasion and that's why God chose him to be the earthly father of Jesus. Joseph has nothing to offer. Sure, he was a law-keeping man, great. Sure, he was from great stock, great. But this is not about Joseph's character. This is about what God is doing in the midst of it. He's unwilling to put her to shame, so he has this crisis of faith. The law says to do one thing, but love says to do another. He has to decide what to do. And being a law keeper, Joseph quickly realizes the law can't help him here. The law is not gonna help here. Because if he has this girl stoned to death, even though she claims it's not hers, that it's, it, it's from the Holy Spirit. And what if it actually is from the Holy Spirit? And then he's done this to the mother of the Messiah. What happens then? He's stuck. He's stuck. Now, reading between the lines, knowing this about Joseph, there's this idea that maybe Joseph um, erred on the side of legalism. Legalism meaning that uh, the law is supreme. Letter of the law is supreme. Many of us, maybe in the South, you grew up with legalistic households. Maybe you grew up in a legalistic church where you had to wear certain things and say certain things and sing certain things and don't listen to certain things and don't smoke and chew and go with the girls who do. And that's, that's what you were told growing up. And so you went to church camp and, and there in your youth room was just a poster of, hey, if you like Nirvana, you should listen to DC Talk. And that, all that was happening. So you go to church camp and you have this moment where everybody's like, oh, we gotta repent of all of our sin. They're like, yeah, I'm done with Nirvana. I'm gonna burn all my CDs. And then you have a bonfire and you thought, anybody else have this experience? Okay. So we have these moments where uh, everything's about behavior. Everything's about modifying behavior. The great pastor Charles Spurgeon has this great quote. He says, beloved, the legalist in us is a great deal older than the Christian. He says, if I were a legalist today, I should be some 15 or 16 years older than I am as a Christian. Then he makes this statement, we are all born legalists. What he means by that is we're all born inherently thinking we have to earn or prove something. And it's why we have such a hard time with grace. Because we come into the world 
thinking you have to check boxes or accomplish or achieve things. And I don't care if you grew up in a, a Western nation or an Eastern nation, if you grew up uh, in, in a poor family or a wealthy family, this whole idea, we're born into the world as legalists, thinking that uh, we have to achieve certain things to earn certain things. And that's why grace gives us such a hard time. But here's the truth for us this morning. The pursuit of perfection will never bring you peace. The pursuit of perfection will never bring you peace. And I'm saying that as a perfection pursuer. I've always believed growing up that I could achieve some place, some level, some status where I would finally find peace. I felt that way athletically, I felt that way academically, I felt that way relationally. If I would just get to the next thing, then I would find peace. And I really felt it when it came to my faith. That if I could just be the good kid and do the right things and, and memorize the right verses for Awana, if I, could, uh, if I could do this in the youth group, if I could finally learn how to play the guitar because all good Christians play the guitar when you're in youth group. If I could just figure out how to make my hands do what my mind was telling them to do, then, then I would be fine. Then I, I, then I would have peace. And I pursued it hard. I did everything I could to find peace through my pursuit of perfection. And then what I learned over time was that I'm not perfect. And so to make sure that I still attained peace, I covered up my imperfection that I might find peace through um, pretend perfection but the pursuit of perfection will never bring you peace. That's what the Old Testament is about. It's about pursuing the law and perfection and God saying, do you get it yet? Because you can't. You can't. You can't do enough right things and avoid enough bad things to find peace. You're never gonna find peace through perfection. It will never happen. So let me just say this to us as parents. We're training our kids to believe that though. We're training our kids to believe that, hey, when you're perfect, then there'll be peace in our home. When you finally do this right, when you finally get those grades, when you finally stop talking back to your mother, then there'll finally be peace in the home. You're the reason there's no peace in this home. And what a shame. And I do it. But the pursuit of peace, of perfection, will never bring peace. And as parents, we have a responsibility to train our children up in the gospel, not in legalism. Verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What the angel is doing is he's getting underneath the real problem for Joseph. The problem for Joseph was fear. He was afraid. He was afraid that if I take Mary as my wife, what happens to my reputation? What happens to what I've worked so hard to achieve? What happens to my life that was pretty good at that point? I'm in Nazareth. I'm, I'm not in some big bustling city. I'm a carpenter. I'm doing okay. I can make enough money to put food on the table. It's just very low key. My life is good. And Mary seemed to fit in line with that. Mary uh, fit in line with everything that he was pursuing. Mary is the most common Hebrew name for a woman. So in other words, Mary was just another Mary. She's just another girl. So she's not gonna cause him a lot of problems, not gonna cause him a lot of drama and pain. It's just gonna be a good, simple life. And then this happens. 
And so Joseph has to decide, am I going to continue with her and all the drama that brings? Or do I stick to this life that I wanted? I'm afraid. Then the angel says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now this is a little mind-blowing, especially for Joseph here in this culture in this time. Remember, it's been 400 years since God spoke through a prophet, but Joseph has kept the law anyway, probably because his daddy told him to keep the law, and so he did. And he kept the law. It's been 400 years. And the angel shows up, and what I love is that the angel tells him what to do, but doesn't really give him a black and white reason to do it. The angel doesn't say, hey, take Mary as your wife, because the law clearly states, no, what he says is, you can trust the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of us like Joseph on the legalistic end of the spectrum, this is mind-boggling to us. The Holy Spirit sounds scary and threatening and risky. And Joseph is not a risk taker. Joseph wants the safe thing. And the angel shows up and says, hey, don't be afraid. Just do this scary thing instead. Don't be afraid. Take her as your wife because this is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And Joseph would have known some of that from prophecy, so he would have known some of that. But before we move forward, I wanna make sure we understand something. This is in a dream. Remember Mary and Elizabeth, and next week we'll read about the shepherds. They have physical experiences of an angel. This happens in Joseph's dream, which means this is a lot easier to discount than the other ones, isn't it? Oh, you had a dream about it? Cool. What'd you have for dinner? Oh, a burrito? That's why. That's probably why you thought this happened. Were you up all night? What did you have to drink that day? These types of things. If it's just a dream, well, I have, a lot, I, have a, I have all kinds of dreams. Why does this one matter at all? And then we say things like this. We say things like, well, I mean, yeah, like, but if, if God were to just show up and tell me to do something, I would definitely do it. Would you, though? Because God's told us to do things in here, and we still argue, don't we? Well, who is my neighbor? Great. Yeah, but I mean, if I had a dream about an angel, then I would. Would you? Because you'd wake up and say, man, that was crazy. And I'm not gonna tell anybody about it. But this is a dream that he has. So very easy for Joseph to discount, isn't it? Especially a black and white thinker, a logical thinker. Man, that was weird. I don't know what just happened, but surely I, that couldn't have been what I thought it was. But he has this moment of reckoning where he has to decide what he's going to do about what it was that he just heard. Now, I told you Matthew is different from Luke and that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so Matthew is gonna build the law and he's gonna build the law in a place that then ends with Jesus. Jesus gives what's called the Sermon on the Mount, this epic sermon in Matthew chapter five. And in verse 17, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish or do away with the law and the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. So what's happening here in this story with Joseph, Matthew is gonna extrapolate for his entire gospel. 
what the legalists believe, what the Pharisees believe, what, um, what the staunch black and white perfectionist thinkers believe is that there's an either or. It's either the law and the prophets or it's the Holy Spirit. And what Matthew is trying to tell us through this account of Joseph is that there is no either or, it's a both and. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He's it. You wanna know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You wanna know what the law was about? How did Jesus handle it? So when, G, when we get to Jesus with the adulterous woman or the woman at the well, you wanna know what God meant when he gave the permission for divorce back in Deuteronomy and Numbers? What he meant was you can, I'm not saying you should. And so we get there for Matthew and this whole thing is happening in context here. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So let's keep reading. Now we're out of the conversation. Now Matthew is giving us something else. He's giving us some more information here. In verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. So this is not something Joseph is hearing. This is something Matthew is writing. Verse 23 from Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So again, Matthew, the author now, is giving us insight. This is not just insight about what Joseph is thinking. This is, this is the entire point of the gospel of Matthew. It's the entire point of Jesus for Matthew. Now remember, Matthew is a Jewish man who is hated by Jewish people as a tax collector. And he meets this revolutionary named Jesus. And while Matthew is collecting taxes, Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. And Matthew leaves everything and follows Jesus. Well, why? Why would a man like that leave everything behind? He's, all, he's already staked his claim on, on people hating him. Why, why would he leave all that behind to follow Jesus? Because this idea that God is with us, that Jesus is for him, changed his life. So Matthew left all of that to follow Jesus. Matthew, who had no friends, found a friend in Jesus. So early on in his gospel, he brings up the prophecy from Isaiah chapter seven that God is with us. What's interesting is that Luke would do something similar. And in Luke chapter 15, Luke gives all these parables about these things that have been, or Jesus gives the parables about things that have been lost and how, how God wants the things that have been lost. And towards the end of all these parables, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the story of the prodigal, what we call the prodigal son. A rich man has two sons. He has an older son and a younger son. And the younger son comes to the father and says, hey, um, pretty much, I wish you were dead. Can I just have the inheritance instead? And the father says, absolutely. Cuts him a check. The younger brother goes, the son goes, and he squanders it on selfish living. Prostitutes and all types of things and debauchery and, and finds himself in a pigsty. And he has a moment where scripture says that he came to or he awoken to himself and says, what am I doing what am I doing here? I could have everything I wanted back home with my dad and, and instead I, I have all of this. And I, what am I doing? I'm gonna go back home. And he says, I'm gonna run back home. When I get home, what I'm gonna say to my dad is, listen, I'll do anything. Like, don't even call me a son. I get I'm no longer a son, but uh, I'll be a servant. I just, I just wanna get the crumbs from your table. Just let me do that. 
Jesus tells us this father figure is, is watching for his son, younger son out in the distance and he sees him coming and the, the father girds up his loins and he runs to the son, which is a, a sign of embarrassment for the father, but he runs to his son and embraces him. The younger son begins saying, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I did this. Um, would you let me back in? I just, and the father stops him before he can finish saying anything and says, bring me the robe. And he brings the robe and puts it around his haggard, pig-stank son and covers him up with it. He says, bring me the ring. And he brings him this signet ring, the ring that signifies he's part of the family. And then he gives him his sandals. Then he says, come inside, we're having a party. I'm gonna kill the fatted calf. And he tells all the servants, get everything ready. Get everything ready. My son who was lost has now been found. Beautiful story of redemption and restoration. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. Jesus continues and says, oh, and by the way, there was an older brother. And all this is happening at the house and the older brother is out in the field. And Jesus says this in Luke 15, verse 25, the older son was out in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Again, I don't know how you hear dancing, but it must've been some dancing if you're hearing dancing. <laughs> Baptist, it's okay, it's okay. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him or pleaded with him. So you've got two sons and one son represents licentiousness or irreligion. He goes and squanders everything. It's welcome back home. Then you've got this older son who represents religion or legalism. Joseph. And the father goes to the older brother and says, come in. Verse 29, the older brother answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. In other words, I am a just man. And you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. Now notice, notice how the father handles the situation. The father being the God character, verse 31. And he said to the older brother, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your, this, your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is found. So when Matthew quotes, quotes from Isaiah 7, calling Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, I think we, we get that, right? God is with us. And for many of us, that's been leveraged to get good behavior out of you. You know God's always with you. And he's keeping a list and he's checking it twice. And he's gonna find out who's naughty or nice. This idea of God's presence has been leveraged, hasn't it, to get us good behavior, hasn't it? Well, Jesus is with you. He's with you with your girlfriend. You know that, right? You know he's been there. You know he was there when you had that laptop open. Okay. This is not a curse. This is a blessing that God is with us. And Luke says it this way in the story of the prodigal son, that we are with God. There's this relationship, this presence. Being in the presence of God means that God is in the presence of you. There is a union happening. And it's important for us to understand Joseph in light of the prodigal son story. Joseph was the older brother. Joseph did the law. Joseph was a law keeper. And Joseph is saying, why me? Why is this happening to me? This doesn't seem fair. 
That's why Matthew tells us that God is with us. Because the presence of God, not our perfection, brings us peace. How do we find peace? Well, not in perfection. Not in accomplishment, not in doing the right things, not in legalism. How do we find peace through the presence of God? And how do we find the presence of God? Through the Holy Spirit. When God is with us, we are with him. How do we find peace? We do it through the presence of God. Matthew keeps telling stories like this. In Matthew chapter eight, he tells the story of a storm in the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are freaking out because the storm is happening and Jesus is asleep on the boat. And they finally wake him up like, what are you doing? And Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. As if to say, I've been with you the whole time. What's your problem? Storms aren't the issue. You've got me in the boat. I am with you. Matthew continues to tell stories that God is with us and we are with God. Let's get back to Matthew chapter one, verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, did not consummate the marriage until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Again, before we get into, yeah, but if, if I saw an angel, I'd obey him too. No, you wouldn't. You, you wouldn't, I wouldn't. I'd explain it away, I'd excuse it away. There are so many things in the New Testament God tells me to do that I'm like, yeah, but are you sure? Well, you should love your neighbor. Yeah, but I mean, have you met my neighbor? Does it count, does it still count? And really, who is my neighbor? Do I have to go like two houses down? Because that guy, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, the guy next to me is fine, but... The person I sit next to, so the same person in traffic, Jesus clearly says to forgive. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe not this time though, right? Like there's a limit to that. Like how many times should I forgive? And he's like 70 times, seven. like, okay, cool. This is 491, so I'm out. <laughs> no, what Joseph did here was not because he saw an angel. It's because he came in contact with the living God and he obeyed. What Joseph does is he goes all in at this point. He forsakes everything. He took his wife and knew her not. Again, I don't wanna get too crass here. But Joseph took her as his wife, which means they could consummate the marriage. And this young man was ready for that, I'm sure. As many of us were, was ready. But he knew her not, why? because he understood that what was in her was from the Holy Spirit and he didn't want to get in the way of it. He wakes from his sleep and immediately goes and takes her as his wife. He goes all in. He trusted, he obeyed, but he was in the presence of God and he found peace. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah is writing to the people in exile and they're gonna be there a long time. And we use Jeremiah 29, 11 for every graduate. So we'll talk about that here in a second. But it's all in context Verse 10, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. You've got 70 more years of exile in Babylon. And then I will visit you. And I will fulfill my promise to you, my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Let's put this in context real quick before you write this on a graduation card for your 18-year-old son. 
He just said, in 70 years, I'm gonna come rescue you. I have plans to prosper you. In us claiming this prayer, this statement of God, that God has plans to prosper us and not to harm us, what we're first saying is, no matter how long it takes, and no matter what it looks like, no matter what else we have to walk through, we trust that God has plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Plans for welfare and not evil to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When? When you seek me with all your heart. You wanna know why you and I don't have peace in the presence of God? Because we're seeking him with half of our heart. We're seeking him with a quarter of our heart. We've got a backup plan, don't we? Like if this doesn't go well, then I've got another plan. That's where Joseph was. Joseph had a good plan in his mind. I'm just gonna divorce her quietly, not to subject her to any shame. That, that was his backup plan. But he has this interaction. And then Matthew clues this in on, hey, he was Emmanuel, God with us, that made a difference here. I think you and I don't have peace. I think we struggle to find peace in the presence of God because we're pursuing with half a heart. God is clear. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You're not gonna find peace if you're half in. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So what's it gonna be? Is it gonna be the presence of God or your 401k? Is it the presence of God? Is it the grace of God or some future marriage you have planned for you? Is it the peace of God through the presence of God or is it this next career move for you? You will find him when you seek him with all of your This is the theme for Matthew throughout his book. So he begins with this in Matthew chapter one, the last chapter of his book in Matthew 28, the final verse, Jesus says to his disciples, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You want peace this morning? It's only found in the presence of Jesus. Which sounds so ethereal and imaginative, doesn't it? So what, I, just, I just pretend he's there. I just have to feel certain things and do certain things. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying we go all in. Either we believe it or we don't. And you wanna know why deconstruction is carrying such validity right now? Because people haven't gone all in or they've gone all in on the wrong things. The scriptures don't tell us to go all in on the law. They don't tell us to go all in on legalism, all in on church attendance, all in on, on tithing. They tell us to go all in on the presence of God. Let's go all in. He's with us. Well, then what do we do? To find peace, to be in the presence of God, we have to practice the presence of God. So I would say first is this, we have to get to know the person of Jesus. And you can't do that half time. So we study the Bible. Not to know rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts, but to know Jesus, to know him. Listen, if you, if you study that and you come to know Jesus and then you decide not to follow him, then that's great. I don't think you'll ever get there. If you really knew him, if you really understood the grace of Jesus, 
can't say no to that. So we have to practice the presence of God by getting to know the person of Jesus. He's God in the flesh. Secondly, I would encourage us to remember God in the little things throughout our days. Remember him. Remember him. Um, it's, why, it's why we pray before meals, that we might remember he's the one who gave it to us. It's why, it's why it's good to listen to Christian music, to listen to worship music. That's why it's good, because you're practicing the presence of God. You're stepping into, reminding yourself of the presence of God. You see a beautiful sunrise, thank the Lord for it. You see a beautiful sunset, thank the Lord for it. You have a great moment with your spouse, thank the Lord for it. Your child um, doesn't get ISS that week, thank the Lord for it. What a miracle for some of our kids. What a gift. <laughs> but remember him in those things. And I'll encourage some of us to build a routine of these things. Build times in your day in which you pray, not out of legalism to check a box, but because you wanna be in the presence of God. So listen, tomorrow morning you wake up and you grab your coffee and you drive to work, what if you don't turn the radio on and what if you just pray? Like, what if you just did that? What if you turned on um, the Bible app and just listened to some scripture to let it wash over you that morning? Practice the presence of God, acknowledge him. What if before a big meeting tomorrow morning, you don't um, try to get all your notes together and rush together and, and run into that conference room? What if you sit down for a second, just thank the Lord for the job you have and ask him to be with you? What if we just simply built a routine of practicing the presence of God? What if our prayers for our meals were less like, um, God is great, God is good, let's thank him for this food. And what if it was more of, God, thank you for giving me this food to eat. I know it's a gift from your hand, so thank you. What if when you got home from work tomorrow morning, or tomorrow evening, afternoon, husband, and you were stepping into your house where you know your kids have been driving your wife crazy for at least four hours? And instead of rushing in there, um, already frustrated from the day at work, what if you stopped in your driveway and just prayed? So Lord, I need you to be with me with these kids today. I think we can build routines where we're acknowledging the presence of God and in doing so, you will find peace that passes understanding. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll wrap up this morning. I wonder if there's anyone here today who would just say, yeah, I'm, um, my life is anything but peaceful right now. I've been thrown in the midst of chaos. Everything is upside down. Would you just raise your hand and say, no, I'm, I'm struggling to find peace. I need, just you can raise your hand honestly, God, would you bring me peace today? I need to find peace, I'm struggling. You put your hands down, praise the Lord. Is there anyone here today who would say, on all honesty, right now in this moment, I'm having a real crisis of faith. I'm struggling to believe that God is who he says he is. Would you raise your hand and say, I'm struggling? Yeah, praise the Lord for your boldness. This is a place you can do that, a place where you should be able to do that and wrestle with that today. The peace of God will not be found in your um, dogmatic approach to Bible study and church attendance. It will only be found in the presence of God. It won't be found in making the right decision and saying the right things. It will only be found in the presence of God. So let's begin there.
there anyone here today who would say, I don't even know this Jesus. I, I feel compelled to follow him today. And I don't know why. I don't know what I'm feeling. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope and I, I don't know what else to do. I'm exhausted. I'm tired from life. And I, I wanna follow Jesus today. I wanna give my life to him. Would you, you can just raise your hand and we can let, let us know. Well, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for the gift of your presence in a way that I always felt was too far off for me. But in the gift of brokenness, Lord, I've learned that you are near and you are present. So God, I pray that for those of us pursuing peace, looking for peace, whether it be because of some situation in our family or at home or at work or a health situation, God, that you would meet us there, that your presence then would bring peace to our hearts and our restless souls. That the disciples in the boat were tempted to be distracted by the waves and the winds on the sea while you're with us the whole time. Remind us of your presence and bring peace to our wandering, weary hearts today, Father, in Jesus' name.